1: You know, the catchy songs they
2: play in commercials. I introduced Fanta to the world. Don't forget, I wrote, G.E., we bring good things to living.
1: David Lucas has written a lot of jingles. I mean, he's also the producer who suggested Blue Oyster Cult use more cowbell in Don't Fear the Reaper. The guy Christopher Walken plays in that famous Saturday Night Live sketch. But yeah, jingles.
2: Catch that you spirit. Drink it in, drink it in. Drink it in. I mean, I wrote hit after hit after hit. I'm losing my ego or I would have a whole list. No, seriously. David has written
1: thousands of jingles. Many from his Manhattan studio in the 70s and 80s. One night in 1983, he was in the studio alone, working out a few lines of music.
2: So there I was at two in the morning, trying to write something and I'm not getting anywhere.
1: This particular job was for a new client, at and They wanted to encourage customers to make more long distance calls, which used to cost different prices depending on the actual distance of the call, say Los Angeles to Miami, for example. For this assignment, they'd asked him to do a refresh on a
2: decade old campaign, but he was struggling. And I'm sitting there playing, writing and missing, writing and missing. Reach out and t- reach out and touch someone. Ah. And I wrote, "Reach out, reach out and touch someone. Reach out. Reach out
3: and touch someone
2: Now I can go somewhere. That's AT&T. But my phone didn't stop ringing. I was the hottest guy in town. The AT&T commercials, Reach Out and
1: Touch Someone, became a sensation. There were nearly a dozen versions of the thing. Someone even wrote a book about it. It marked a new frontier for advertising, using the desire for physical touch to sell a product. In fact, the phrase, Reach Out and Touch Someone, wasn't even David's idea.
4: Uh, ideas go off in all directions when Marshall McLuhan is here. Just it came
1: Marshall. from the work of Marshall McLuhan one of the most important thinkers on the intersection of advertising and psychology.
4: TV is not a pictorial medium at all. It is a medium of odd-dial tactile resonance. How can I use the medium better, Mr. McLuhan? Am I hot, cool, or just right? <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're right with it.
1: So McLuhan thought of TV as a tactile medium. And the rise of smartphones also certainly fits the same bill. Think about how just about every phone call, text, and status update comes to our attention thanks to a buzz in our pockets. A kind of physical embodiment of the digital world. But what is touch? I mean, beyond the obvious. That's sort of the question we set out to answer in this episode. In large part because it seems like we're doing a lot less touching than we used to. Even with pandemic lockdowns now a thing of the past, the normalcy of distancing has in some ways remained. And perhaps it's because of the pandemic's call for all of us to isolate that we've begun to notice the lack of touch. But what's surprising is that it's a shift that was already occurring. As one academic study put it, social engagement and companionship showed signs of progressive decline years prior to the pandemic. At a pace not eclipsed by the pandemic. We've been drifting away for a while, it's just that we've now started to notice. For a whole host of fairly complicated reasons, having to do with technology, work, independence, social awareness, people are generally touching each other less. And that shift is changing the way we perceive the world, and our place in it. And what does it even mean to lose touch? To be clear here, we're not just talking about sex, although there's evidence we're generally doing a lot less of that as well. This is about touch, what it can do for us, and what happens when we go without it. From hospitals, to homes, to people who quite literally can't feel a thing. This is Without. I'm Omar Lakhid. On today's episode, we look at physical contact. The basic act of reaching out and touching someone. In the mid-80s, in a plan to grow Romania's workforce, Nicolae Ceausescu, the country's president, all but abolished access to abortions. Now, less abortions meant more babies, which Ceausescu hadn't seemed to account for. Thousands of new Romanians ended up in understaffed orphanages, where they were left nearly untouched for years. In the 90s, Dr. Tiffany Field went to some of these orphanages.
5: It was extremely depressing. And, I mean, I had sort of uh, regretful feelings about even going there. Um, Because I had never seen children like this. It was just shocking.
1: In the world of touch research, studies that actually restrict touch are more or less non-existent.
5: What's a risk-benefit ratio? We certainly can't deprive people of, of touch. That's just not possible.
1: Essentially, we don't do experiments where we deprive people of touch because it's plainly inhumane it's just that important. It might be the sort of thing some people think of as frivolous, as not a real area of scientific research, not physics, not chemistry, but it is very serious stuff. It's also what Tiffany Field does for a living.
5: I'm Dr. Tiffany Field from the Touch Research Institute.
1: Tiffany Field's interest in the study of touch started in 1976, after the premature birth of her daughter. At the time, one of the strategies for encouraging growth in premature babies was to stimulate the mouth through replicating the physical experience of breastfeeding. That's just a fancy way of saying that the basic act of touch could help these newborns grow. But Dr. Field figured, why just the mouth? Could something similar be done for the whole body? Trying
5: to explore basically the underlying mechanism for how that worked.
1: Early research showed that babies who were massaged gained 57% more weight and were discharged almost a week earlier than babies who hadn't received similar treatment. But why would babies who are touched grow? Well, it turns out that when you stimulate the body's pressure receptors under the skin, the nervous system slows down and something called vagal activity starts to pick up. The vagus nerve is this huge highway that reaches many parts of the body one of them being the gastrointestinal tract, which in turn speeds up the release of growth hormones. But as stunning as those early results were, Dr. Field found that people didn't take her seriously when she called the process a baby massage.
5: Our premature baby study is not called massage. It's called tactile kinesthetic stimulation. (laughs) Because, you know, it was, uh, massage has been, you know, a word that has some negative connotations. After a while, we had to call a spade a spade.
1: It's as if touch is understood to be vital, but also something we don't talk about, and thus don't fund. Dr. Field compares the issue to a Wisconsin scientist, who met rejection after applying for funding to study the science of love.
5: Senator Proxmire from Wisconsin said when uh, grant came up for a review on love he said why well, we need to study love everybody knows what love is
1: but do they touch is an equally unexplored area of study it's why dr field opened her school the touch research institute back in the 1990s it's part of the university of miami's medical school and the institute like almost everywhere else closed during the pandemic That was kind of ironic, since her studies on pandemic touch deprivation caught journalists' attention right around the same time. After all, millions of people suddenly found themselves not touching anyone. Dr. Field's study found 60% of respondents felt some form of touch deprivation.
5: And of course, once we reported these data, I started getting calls from all over the world from press. And what they concluded was that COVID brought on the absence of touch or touch deprivation.
1: But Dr. Field knew that probably wasn't the case. Just before the start of the COVID pandemic, she and her students had done studies where they watched physical interaction at airport gates. They observed that 68% of the time, people weren't talking, they weren't interacting, they were on their cell phones. This really shouldn't come as much of a surprise to anyone who's been in an airport lately. I mean, I spend a lot of my time going back and forth to literary festivals, and not only did I notice it, I'm sure I'm contributing to that 68%. We've been moving away from interacting with one another for a while now.
5: So I had to say to these reporters who were basically assuming that the absence of touch or touch deprivation was started with COVID. It was already going on with social media.
1: There are a ton of studies showing a decline in social interaction over the last 20 years, but the data tying social media to physical interaction is a little conflicting. Still, it's easy enough to imagine a situation and come to your own conclusion. Are you going to like someone's daily story updates on your phone while sitting next to them in the same room? I'm sure some people do, but I'm also middle-aged, and this is the sort of topic where it's real easy to wander into the whole those damn kids with their phones-type territory. What we do know is that the absence of touch tends to have pretty awful health effects. Researchers say a day without it produces some of the same negative consequences as smoking nearly a pack of cigarettes. Less
5: touch was related to greater anxiety, depression, stress,
1: fatigue, and sleep problems. So what happens when we do receive touch? When we come back... We'll meet someone who found out just how much that basic act can do during one of life's most intense moments.
4: Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time.
3: Suddenly, out of the dark, appeared bin Laden.
0: You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position?
2: Vengeance felt good seeing these. People paid for what they'd done, felt righteous.
1: True Spies, from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. About 15 years ago, Helena Wasling arrived at a hospital in Sweden. She was going into labor.
0: So I'm in pain, obviously. And uh, my husband says to the midwife, who's one of those old school midwives, a uh, sturdy woman, so, my husband says, "Um, you know she's in pain could she could she maybe have the the epidural and the the midwife says, "No, no, 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 we don't need any epidural here, but if you want to, I could just ease your pain by using a touch method, and i just I just actually thought that that was the most ridiculous thing
1: I had ever heard. Helena can be analytical; she's a scientist, and having given birth before. She already had a personal test case to verify that this is going to be painful, but the midwife wouldn't budge. So she figured, fine, she'd agree to let the midwife touch her. And when that didn't work, she could finally have an epidural.
0: So I said, sure, sure, you know, let's try it then. And uh, so I'm standing up. So when when the contraction started, you're sort of, you know, you're Uh, wobbling from from side to side and doing whatever movement you can do to just try to avoid this whole uh, wave of pain just uh, flowing over you. So this midwife, this big lady, she stands behind me very, very tightly. Um, So she hugs my body from behind and in perfect sync with my movements, she does the exact same dance that I'm performing. And in rhythm with my breath, she caresses my big baby stomach and she does this for the whole duration of the contraction and when she's done i was just you know baffled by the reduction in pain that i uh, that i experienced i think it took at least 70 percent of the pain intensity just right away and I can certainly say that that wasn't a placebo because I had no <laughs> no faith <laughs> in that being a very helpful method.
1: This was especially surprising to Helena because for many years at the University of Gothenburg's physiology department, her research was centered on touch. She even wrote a book on the subject. I do touch
0: research and I've done it for a long time, but I'm not that much of a toucher um, myself I am a bit particular in who I let into that uh, closeness.
1: Obviously, touch isn't simply something we observe from a distance. Studies have tracked humans touching their faces over a dozen times an hour, and their phones a ludicrous-sounding 2,600 times a day. But there are so many ways to think about touch. And we should pause here for a second and explain exactly what we're talking about when we use the word touch at least so we can imagine what it is we'd be living without. There's two ways the body interprets touch. The first, whether we're initiating the action or not, is simply descriptive. When you hold an object in your hand without looking at
2: it,
0: you can describe the physical features of that object. You can say that it's rough or smooth or jagged, or you can sense that it's cold or warm, and eventually you can probably name what kind of object that is, like a key or a paperclip or whatever. So that's
1: a, the descriptive side of a touch. This kind of sense is quick, shooting up to the brain, delivering all the tactile details. But of course, we aren't generally just calculating and analytical every time we make contact. We have an emotional response as well. And that emotional response comes from a very different set of nerve fibers altogether. So the emotional touch is transmitted through very, very
0: thin, sort of naked and bare Nerve fibers that are called C fibers.
1: All you really need to know about these fibers is that they're one of the body's information highways. But the emotional fibers in particular, they're some of the oldest parts of human beings. Hell, they're older than human beings. Older than our whole species.
0: We've had them since we were, you know, fish. And they reach areas of the brain that don't tell you what you've touched. They don't tell you if something is rough or smooth or cool or warm. They reach areas of the brain that tells you whether that touch is pleasant or unpleasant.
1: And so, whether you're engaged in contact sports, scrolling on your phone, or kissing a loved one, your brain is constantly flooded with both emotional and descriptive impulses. A couple of years ago, Helena wrote a book on the subject. And while researching that book, she met a woman who didn't receive either of these signals. It wasn't just some physiological quirk. This was dangerous, almost existentially so. It put every other part of her at risk, including her other senses.
0: When you don't have any sense of touch or pain, your eyesight is very threatened. Because, you know, if you get a strand of hair or a grain of sand in your eye, you're extremely troubled. But for her, she doesn't sense it at all. She could just permanently injure her cornea so when she loses her eyesight, she would have a sense of being bodiless.
1: In a way, it's a physical mirror to French philosopher René Descartes' central theory. I think, therefore I am. If you can't touch, how do you know your place in the physical world? You know, you can see
0: a plant, and you like, is that a real plant or a fake plant? I have to touch it to make sure. And you have to touch things to make sure that they exist. So sometimes I think if people never touch us, are we real? And when no one ever touches you, you become a bit, you know, unsecure. Am I a part of the social network or not? But some of the interesting anecdotes I've heard from people who were isolated for a long time during COVID, for example, where they had absolutely no one to touch them for, you know, up to two years. They used terminology as... I started to think that I didn't exist anymore.
1: But even the woman Helena met, whose body wasn't able to give her tactile or emotional information about physical touch, she still found ways to connect, despite some serious hurdles.
0: She was married for a while, and I said, well, how was that, you know, interaction with, and her husband was blind. And what was that, you know, marital situation like when you wanted to show each other tenderness? Everyone else would just stretch out their hand and say, you know, caress your husband's back while you meet at the coffee maker in the morning. And she said they did the same. She could say that touch and closeness and warmth meant something to her, even though she had never experienced it.
1: But it's hard to overstate the damage a body can take when the sense of touch isn't there. Because the woman can't feel things physically, accidents become much more destructive. A stray finger caught in a door, her tongue bit too hard— all things she can't process the moment they happen. And so, that same spasm of pain that causes someone to immediately pull their hand away from a hot stove element, it just doesn't exist. This woman Helena met had already lost fingers, teeth, she'd damaged her tongue, all because she couldn't feel pain as a defense mechanism. Even her other senses are put at risk. So in many ways, touch is the interface that allows us to pin down our place in the world. The less access we have to it, the less stable our sense of self becomes. After the break, what's it look like when touch becomes a service, a commodity to be bought and sold?
3: How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that,
1: trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics but she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this
0: is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption,
1: and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. When Dr. Tiffany Field of the Touch Research Institute was conducting surveys on how people respond to physical contact, she couldn't help but go into it with a few untested assumptions. There's two populations
5: that we worked with that we thought were going to be touch-aversive. One was uh, kids with autism, because they don't generally like being touched. And we suggested that it may be because massage is a very predictive form of touch. It's not
1: unpredictable, like social touch is, is often unpredictable. And this is one of the trickier aspects of touch. You can never be quite certain where it's going, how quickly something can turn awkward. But what if you could add a degree of certainty?
5: A lot of people, supposedly, who don't like touch in their normal lives, will go to these cuddling sessions knowing that there are rules. And, you know, the rule is that all you can do is hold
1: someone. If this is the first time you've heard that phrase, cuddling session, well, It's sort of exactly what it sounds like. A session in which customers pay for a predictable, well-defined version of touch. Customers like Johnny Ginther. When the pandemic hit, Johnny, who was living in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania at the time, found himself completely without touch. For health reasons, he was apart from his girlfriend and keeping a distance from his roommate. Essentially, he was barely interacting with anyone in a physical sense. This went on for a while.
3: At least a year. I'm sure it didn't help that I wasn't, that I didn't have contact, that I didn't have physical contact with my partner.
1: It was a low period for Johnny. He'd recently quit his job in computer science, which he was pretty good at, but the work didn't make him happy. He says he hadn't touched anybody or been touched for over a year. In a 2014 study, scientists conducted an experiment. They invited subjects struggling with tensions around death, existential threats, low self-esteem. And they found that simply being touched on their shoulder, or holding a teddy bear as a kind of reminder of social connectivity, made people a lot less anxious. But back to Johnny. Coming out of the pandemic, he learned about the cuddle industry. It's been around for over a decade, and it's not for everybody. Helena, the touch researcher, tried to go to one of these places, and it did nothing for her. But in a world so focused on language, from texting to dialogue, it felt like an oasis for Johnny.
3: When I discovered professional cuddling, it, it started tying together a bunch of threads in my life. I am recognizing a lot now that I struggle more with language than what it appears other people do. So it's a lot easier for me to connect with other people through touch than it is with words and language. Johnny decided to sign
1: up for a local cuddling training course. You know, a common career switch for computer scientists. One thing required in the training was to attend a session with a certified cuddler. In this case, one provided by an outfit called the Cuddle Sanctuary, which doesn't actually seem to have any medical board certification. Even for this very physical interaction, though, the best method of outreach is still online.
4: Basically, I do a little bit of screening um, online or over the phone, wherever I happen to meet somebody.
1: This is Mila. She's a professional cuddler who lives in Lewisbury, Pennsylvania, about an hour north of Baltimore.
4: We just kind of chat a little, and I ask them kind of what their goals are, whether they're comfortable being someone who would lead the session or whether they would need me to lead the session because they kind of don't know what they're comfortable with. And then we agree to meet, and when I meet someone in person, I walk outside to meet them, and I greet them outside, and we chat a little, and I ask if I can give them a hug, which kind of sets the, I guess sets the tone because we've already hugged.
1: Mila also received her training at the Cuddle Sanctuary about two and a half years ago. There are a lot of professional cuddlers like Mila all over the world. And you can find them on sites like Snuggle with Sam, Cuddle Companions, and Rent-A-Friend.
4: So we'll lie down next to each other and maybe chat a little. And I say, hey, would it be okay if I just kind of lay my head on your shoulder and put my arm around you? And most people say yes. And we end up snuggling.
3: It was it was so easy to engage with, with Mila in an intimate touch way. <sighs> like... Like, I don't, maybe we only had like 10 minutes of, of like warm up, get to know each other time. But after that, it, it was like we had known each other for years.
1: What Johnny experienced is intentional. Mila works really hard to set up a comfortable space. She invites her clients into a room that is minimal, all painted black, apart from the wood floors and a few framed tarot cards. In the center of the room, there's a bed.
4: But it doesn't always go casually, because people are in an intimate space with you where they might pour their heart out, and you might be kind of carrying that around for a day, a week, a month, even. I think maybe three, maybe four times, I've had someone who had been led to me through the difficulty of being isolated, the difficulty of, you know, living through the pandemic, or being in a, a difficult relationship and kind of having some trauma surrounding touch and intimacy.
1: For many people coming into Mila's space, this is their first time. Now, this isn't sex work, it's touch work, but Mila recognizes there can be some serious confusion about that.
4: Like, hey, I see that, you know, maybe you're feeling a little bit of something that might be centering on desire. That's not something that I'm personally interested in. I'm proud of you for being in touch with your feelings. Yay, we know your body works correctly, but we're going to go this way. If you want to sit up and have a drink of water or use the restroom, let's do that, and then we can jump back in and snuggle a little.
1: While Mila's clientele is obviously a small sample size, she has noticed some similarities among the men who use her service. In particular, the way many of them associate the idea of touch and where it's okay to receive it.
4: As far as I've been told, they are usually pigeonholed into touch through the context of a romantic relationship. Where are they receiving a hug? Where are they receiving someone holding their hand? Someone, you know, scratching their hair and saying, hey, you know what, I really enjoy your company. I like being with you. That's like, it's kind of depressing to think about.
1: Early on in the development of this episode, Sarah, a researcher on this show, shared a very unique study. It showed a map of men and women's bodies and their rising levels of discomfort in relation to physical contact. While those levels changed depending on various factors like age, nationality, and who was making contact, one thing was very clear. Men were overall immediately uncomfortable with being touched. Not just in more private places, but from head to toe.
4: There would be people that would say, who would pay for a hug? Like, why? What, what kind of new-age garbage is that? And I've heard that so many times. And what I've always responded to that with is that you're not paying me for a hug. You're paying me for my time.
1: Vulnerability is already tricky, all the more so in an industry like cuddling. As a woman inviting mostly men into her space, Mila found it's important that she maintain power. But part of the idea of touch is that exchange, to feel comfortable being open to touch and to being touched. On one occasion... Mila had a client she knew in for a session. Mila had recently been having issues with a group of friends, and it was on her mind a lot. Of course, like a therapist, she tried not to bring her personal life into the sessions.
4: And I was in a session with one of my clients, and he said to me, you know, something that I learned is that if I'm somewhere or I'm with someone and it doesn't feel good, it's not me. I'm in the wrong place. I mean, he finished saying that, and I just burst into tears. So, I mean, waterworks. And I apologized. I said, "You know, oh my God, I'm so, I'm supposed to be holding space for someone. Here I am, crying like a baby." And he said, "No, that's that's you being authentic. That's okay."
1: And this is where it becomes about more than just paying a few bucks to have someone give you a hug or rub your back or whatever. If it was just a matter of physical contact, things would be a lot more straightforward. But then, you wouldn't expect that woman that the researcher Helena met, the one whose body couldn't process tactile information, to have developed a deep connection with touch anyway, a connection she had to forge through alternate means. And that might be because, for someone in need of touch, The contact itself is so often a precursor to something far less concrete, a chance to let your guard down, to be vulnerable, and maybe have someone match that vulnerability. It's an entirely different kind of intimacy, but it is intimate. In the interviews for this episode, there was a recurring pattern that came up. In a lot of cases, touch was meant to take something away as much as deliver something. Take away pain, take away loneliness take away the sense of being disconnected from the world. In a way, that helps explain why those AT&T ads were so successful. They promised a taking away of distance. And that promise was so powerful, the company was able to use the idea of touching someone to sell a product that was decidedly not about touching someone. That was in fact about an interaction that's completely touchless. Which brings us back to David Lucas, the guy who wrote those jingles. The whole incentive for the promotion was to get people to call long distance. In a way, it's not so different than the type of non-touch interactions we've all become accustomed to. Texting, tweeting, that sort of thing. In the ads, the actors are often talking to someone far away while sitting in a room with someone next to them. At a party, with their family, their spouse. During the conversation with David, we were surprised to find he wasn't alone either.
2: Hold on, hold on one second.
1: Hey, honey! Look, say hello
2: to Gabriella.
1: This is Gabriella Uris, David's wife.
2: We've, we're approaching our fifth year um, together. and uh,
5: Four years we, married.
2: We met late, late in life. The guy who wrote the jingle
1: about reaching out and touching someone was finally ready to reach out and touch someone. So, how did David and Gabriella meet? Come on, it wasn't matched. What was it?
0: Oh, what was the site? Yeah. eHarmony.
1: Two elderly lovers, a jingle maker in Florida and a medical geneticist working in Beverly Hills, met on a dating site. David came out to meet Gabriella in Los Angeles for a week, and their first afternoon together, they ran into one of David's old friends from the music industry.
2: She said after a while, she said, you guys are so cute. How long have you been together? I said, an hour.
1: <laughs> it was a whirlwind connection. And just as quickly, David was heading back to Florida, leaving Gabriella in L.A. And
2: after a couple of days, I said, you should come here. She packed up all of her shit and came back here and never left. That was five years ago. They haven't been
1: to L.A. since. There's a lot of studies examining digital life, whether it's cutting down on our social interaction and how often we're touching or being touched. But that same digital life is also clearly providing new means for people to connect in very intimate ways, even if sometimes it might take a bit longer to get there. The closeness that touch implies, it can mean very different things to different people. Maybe for one person, it's a session with a professional cuddler. For someone else, a web forum where everyone knows their name. I mean, even the guy who wrote the song about reaching out and touching somebody met the love of his life online. Hell, we should all be so lucky. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. This episode is produced by Emil Klein, with editorial assistance from Abby Fentress Swanson. Our associate producers are Fendel Fulton and Kendra Hanna, with production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. And our research is by Sarah Mathers. Oh, right. One more thing. Hold on a second. You remember how David Lucas is the guy who suggested Blue Oyster Cult use more cowbell on that song, Don't Fear the Reaper? Well, during our interview with him, David wandered off screen for a bit. Like an
2: actor in a skit. Right here we have. This is the cowbell. <laughs> no. Hi, <Hey>, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>